You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The haunting continued. If I had to guess, I would have said that the person walking up the stairs was an adult. Although the footsteps weren't particularly loud or heavy, the stairs were desperately creaky. Each step sounded as though the worn wooden step beneath it could go at any second. But what stairs? I would run out to the hallway, but it was an elevator building, and there was no one on the fire escape stairs. Then what could it be? Again mystified, I returned to my apartment, trying to sleep through the creaks, but unable to silence the part of me that was well aware that this noise was a signal in every horror movie that something is about to jump out and kill. The most frightening sound came last, a woman's scream. Like the other sounds, the scream woke me suddenly in the middle of the night. It was terrified and piercing, and sent an echoing chill through my entire body. Like all the other sounds, I experienced the screams as though they had physically penetrated my eardrums. My visceral response was to curl into a ball and pull the covers over my head to hide. While squeezing my eyes shut, I put my hands over my ears, trying desperately to block out the noise, wondering if I should call the police, the doorman, run into the hallway, something. But that only seemed to make the noise louder, and it suddenly dawned on me that it was louder because it was coming from inside my head. A talk with the audiologist introduced me to the term head noise, a reproduced sound that my brain was creating, and just knowing this seemed to quiet it down a bit. I still get them sometimes, but they've become more benign. I'll hear crickets sometimes, whole concerts of them smack in the middle of my New York City apartment, or a snap-crackle-pop, reminiscent of one of my favorite childhood breakfast cereals. Though the tinnitus, of course, has persisted, unabated, it's a lot easier to block out than the sound of a woman screaming bloody murder. Rebecca Alexander is a psychotherapist, extreme athlete, and activist. Her new book is Not Fade Away, a memoir of senses lost and found. Thank you for speaking with me, Rebecca. Sure. Thanks for having me today. This is such a, a fascinating book because in it you chart a journey, an emotional journey for yourself where you have to relearn about the way you approach the world in a manner that's completely different from anybody else. I'd like you to just talk about your earliest experiences as a child, the intimations that maybe things weren't working out quite right for you. Well, um, so because I have Usher's syndrome, which is a, uh, a rare recessive genetic condition that's causing me to lose both my vision and my hearing, it wasn't something that um, really came on until my teens, um, and my first the vision part came on in my early teens, and in my late teens, just about 19, I learned that uh, I was progressively losing my hearing as well. So I just assumed that when I was younger, I was a bit clumsy. Uh, I had I I was very afraid of the dark, and I just figured that I was a scaredy cat, not knowing that likely because I couldn't see well in the dark, I was very afraid of what may have been there. You know, one of the things you chronicle in this book is in your childhood when your parents broke up and your feelings about that. And I think that you do a great job of 
looking at childhood back from your adulthood, but conveying your feelings as a child. Yeah, you know, I think that the my, my parents separated and then divorced at around, well, really just the same time that I, would, I was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa, which is the vision part of the condition I have. And so I was sent to a therapist, and it was it was very difficult at the time because I obviously had brothers, and I was the only one going to therapy. So I think there was some part of me that felt like maybe this was not that it was my fault, but that this was all sort of linked. You know, the going, the losing your vision, and the your parents getting divorced. That somehow that was all interconnected, and I was the one who needed help for it. You know, in that section. You ask a really good question, which is, uh, how could a 12-year-old girl even imagine going blind? And I think that that this gets at the heart of what we as readers who who aren't experiencing that, you know, have a hard time wrapping our brains around it, too. Yeah, you know, I, I think that people say, well, so what did you hear? What did you think when people told you at 12 or doctors told you at 12 that you were going uh, to be blind by adulthood? And I I didn't hear that. I didn't think that. I mean, certainly I was told essentially that I was uh, I had poor vision at night. And that was really what I understood, because when you are essentially, for all intents and purposes, fully sighted, there's no way to possibly understand what life would be like without vision when it's something you've always had. You know, too, uh, in these scenes, the early scenes of you as a child, one of the things you're always trying to do is to be a good patient. And you have an interesting understanding of what it means to be a good patient because you want to be curable and, and, and right there. So so talk about those feelings and how, as you were growing up, all of a sudden you had to kind of change your vision for what being a good patient meant. Right. Well, then I think that's a very good point because, you know, when I was going in to be tested and there would be hours upon hours of testing and uh, each test was different and longer than the one before. And as a child or as a kid, what you want to do when you're tested is you want to test well. You you want to do well. You don't quite understand that this isn't about, you know, whether you do well or not. It's about understanding what your limitations are or what the condition is that they're trying to diagnose you with um, is. And so I would go into this, you know, visual field exam and you'd have this Jeopardy-like buzzer that you'd, uh, you'd push every time you saw a light come into your field of vision. And at times I remember, you know, pushing it even when I didn't see the light. First of all, because when you're sitting in, and you're looking into sort of a, a bowl for that long looking for a light, I think you start to see <laughs> lights just because you've, you're you're so accustomed to trying to see the light. But uh, I also think I pushed it because I wanted to be seeing the light. I wanted to make my parents proud. At the same time, you, you began losing your hearing. And one of the things you do very early on is describe your experience of tinnitus. And as one who also suffers from that, I thought you did a great job of capturing what that is like. Mm -hmm. Well, tinnitus is hard to describe. And the best way that I've found to describe it 
to others is telling them that it sounds like when you leave a really loud uh, rock concert or when you leave a uh, an auditorium or a room or some form of music performance that's particularly loud and you feel or you hear uh, a ringing sensation in your ears and generally it goes away, you wake up the next morning and it's gone. And that was what I experienced when I had the first significant dip in my hearing or loss in my hearing. Uh, but the tinnitus would would not go away. So I was walking around with it for about two weeks. And it sounded as though the the ringing was so loud that I couldn't hear other people speak over it. That was must have been a, a big clue for you. But also one of the big clues for you is your genetic inheritance being an Ashkenazi. So talk about the problems with that inheritance and your understanding of it and explain to us how you managed to trip the unlucky one in three million or whatever your usher three probabilities are. Right. Well, so as we know, you know, the Ashkenazi community of Jews, and that's usually, you know, Eastern European Jews or Jews who are from Eastern Europe or have ancestry there. Um, I have, you know, both sides of my parents have family from um, Russia, near the Ukraine in Kiev, Russia. Uh, and so we believe that, you know, many, many years ago that we had a similar relative um, that may have married and passed on this very rare recessive gene. And of course, in those days, you know, cousins married cousins, and it was a much different way of living and community. And I don't think that I quite understood you know, I, I knew that, that Ashkenazis were more prone to having diseases like Tay-Sachs and other conditions that are, are more prominent among uh, the Ashkenazi Jews. But considering this was something I'd never heard of before, and most people hadn't heard of, and because it was so rare, it it didn't at first quite cue me in to, to saying, oh, yes, this is another Ashkenazi, you know, genetic condition that we are sort of predisposed for. You talked about Usher syndrome. Tell us about the three different kinds and what their probabilities are and and how they've been identified and, and when your diagnosis for Usher came in as Usher and not just these two different things kind of drifting in interlocking fashion. Mm-hmm. Well, so there's three types of Usher syndrome. And Usher syndrome type one is uh, the form of Usher syndrome where you are born completely deaf and you are losing your vision. Generally, your vision starts to or goes more rapidly. Um, and by your teenage years, you're 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 pretty close to blind. Um, type two is where you're born with a set amount of hearing loss. And that is you generally are not losing any more hearing uh, than you were born with, but that you're also progressively losing your vision. And type 3, which is the most recently identified, which is what I have, is the mildest onset of Usher syndrome. And it uh, includes progressive loss of both vision and hearing. So some people are born with a very small amount of hearing loss. I fortunately was was born pretty much hearing naturally. I mean, I obviously passed all of my hearing tests when I was young, when I was a child. So um that was very fortunate. But so because it's the mildest onset, we have the least amount of information about it. It affects the least amount of people that we know of. Usher syndrome type 1 and type 2 are most prevalent, particularly in the U.S. Uh, and around the world. 
And, you know, I I mentioned in the book that in some ways I feel somewhat fortunate to have type three because I was able to develop speech and learn to hear like any other person. Uh, and I had, you know, for all intents and purposes, again, pretty natural vision uh, until it started to to fade when I was, you know, in my teens. Now, you're going to high school in, in your teens. Uh, you're trying to fit in and you're trying to be part of the crowd and you're a natural athlete. So talk about all this um, and with the with the this disease gnawing around the edges and maybe you're not quite aware of it yet. So, uh, I mean, this must have made for an interesting crosstalk that I think you do a great job describing as you were growing up. Yeah. You know, I think as teenagers and when we're in high school, we are so conscious of ourselves and we're so self-conscious and and insecure and just trying to fit in to the best of our ability. And I loved playing sports. Um, I, I loved playing soccer. And I went to a high school where the soccer team, the women's soccer team, was particularly strong. And I really wanted to make it onto the varsity team. And I remember when tryouts were happening that the it would start getting dark earlier because it was in, you know, it was a winter sport here in California. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, no, I don't see well at night. I'm worried about how this is going to affect my ability to try out for this team. And so, of course, I ended up playing JV soccer for my freshman and sophomore year. And by junior year, I couldn't handle the idea of still being on the JV team. So I, I simply stopped playing soccer. But, you know, I was very fortunate, too. I, you know, I had a high school sweetheart and he was very supportive I, we knew I drove during the day at the time. I didn't drive at night. And my friends knew that I had difficulty seeing at night. So whenever we went out or we did anything, someone was always holding on to me. At this point, you knew you had difficulty seeing at night, but you didn't realize that your vision was going away? Yeah, I think that, you know, this may have been something that I I conceptually understood. But to try, again, to understand that you are going blind when you see pretty well. Um, it, there's no way to really understand what that means. And I think that it wasn't until later in my 20s when I really saw what I wasn't seeing, that is where I started to bump into things more often or things came out of my you know, sort of blind spots and they appeared to me as though they came out of nowhere. Um, that was where I really started to get a sense of what it was that I was missing. Um, so yeah, in my, in my teens, I think that maybe I, I knew that down the road that my vision was going to get worse. But again, it was, it was when I was, um, all I knew was that when I was an adult, that was going to happen. And when you're a teenager, being an adult seems like it's light years away. You can't even imagine being 21, let alone an adult at all. These days at 28, you can't imagine being an adult. Yeah, yeah. one of the things I think that's really interesting uh, about this book is the the way you, you talk about your food issues, and, mm-hmm. and I think that you do a good job of bringing in like worries that that other people have that, along with your own much rarer worries, and, and intermixing them and showing how everything requires you know an effort of will to overcome. Sure. Well, I think that, you know, um, many, many people struggle with food in some form. We're, we're introduced to food early on as sort of love. 
and not just nourishment. And I think that food is something that we are very much able to control. And so for me, when my diagnosis with Usher syndrome started to kind of set in, and maybe it wasn't setting in, but my my need to avoid the inevitable led to an eating disorder. Because here I was with progressive vision and hearing loss, something that was so completely out of my control that I found if I limited the food that I ate and if I exercised more, that I could really control something in my life. And it became a coping mechanism. And many of us do it through either overeating to deal with emotions or not deal with emotions. We eat to suppress those emotions. And some of us use control to avoid having to deal with things that are so completely out of our control. It's a way of trying to bring power back to our lives. You know, the idea of power in our lives and power over the choices that we make and the choices and our ability to deal with the things that we have no choice and no power over, that runs throughout this book and that runs throughout everybody's lives. Mm -hmm. And I think that your genius is that your experience has given you a series of perceptions. You have already gone over the cliffs that most of us will never even see. And that gives you the ability to write about the aspect of controlling our lives in a manner that I think is really deeply inspirational. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I think one of the things, you know, about my book is people, you know, read about vision and hearing loss, or at least my experience, and they think, wow, that's so, you know, profound and something I'll never have to deal with. But the reality is that we all have something whether it's emotional, whether it's psychological, whether it's physical, if it's a terminal illness or any type of debilitating condition, we all deal with something. And it, it can often paralyze us or at least hinder us or keep us from living our lives um, to the best of our abilities or in a way that we would want to. And I think that we're very, we're very afraid of what we can't control. And yet there's so much we can't control. Most of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, um, it's interesting too to me that uh, your um, how you've managed to pursue um, athletics um, given you know your disability. So I'd like you to to talk about that because that was something that you had your foot in well before this started, and you managed to not only stay in but improve. I, tell us about becoming a spin instructor. Yeah. So well. So when I was in graduate school, um, I actually. Uh, was at Columbia University in, in New York City, which is where I live now. And um, I just remember that everything seemed so expensive in New York City. And I really loved taking spin classes at the gym. But uh, Explain I, what spin is. Right, sure. So spin is, it's an indoor cycling class. Essentially, you sit on a bike that goes absolutely nowhere, and you have an instructor that sort of guides you, and, and you sort of simulate being on an outdoor ride. And some people uh, teach spin classes, and it's sort of more like dancing on a bike almost because it's really just for the music and getting your body moving. But it's a it's a very popular form of exercise um, around the country. And uh, so I've the irony of of te teaching spin is that the spin room usually the lights are off and the music is quite loud. And so for somebody who can't see or hear very well, it's. <laughs> It's definitely a challenging environment to, to be in, but I'm also on a bike that's not going anywhere, so I don't have to worry about running into anyone and, or running anyone over. 
Um, and I have a microphone so that I can, you know, I can make my voice much louder for other people to hear me uh, and for me to hear as well. But so I, I decided to teach spin because I, well, I wanted to have a free gym membership. And just like anybody else, it, it became, it sort of became like my little party. You know, I got to play the music that I loved and I got to really encourage people to work hard and to, you know, just feel the strength of their body. And it really felt very empowering. You know, getting to the point where you could teach spin was a huge journey for you. And this has, uh, comes back to uh, the last uh, call from your adolescence. You were at a party with your boyfriend, Cody, and he you decided to uh, drink a lot of vodka. Talk about that experience and what came out of that. Sure. So when I was 18, it was after my... Uh, senior year of high school, and I was preparing to go off to uh, the University of Michigan for college. And, you know, uh, teens do stupid things, and we wanted to go to a dance club, and and we wanted to drink. We wanted to be drunk for it because, you know, we were still uh, experimenting just like many teenagers do. And so we, you know, stopped somewhere, I think like a playground a uh, school and and we had a lot to drink and then we you know walked to the to this dance club and unfortunately I was able to get myself in and I was fine and and then unfortunately the alcohol really hit me and I you know I didn't know what my tolerance was I was not an experienced drinker to say the least and so we ended up leaving and I was put to bed uh, by a friend and somehow in the early morning hours, I got up still so intoxicated and delirious, and I don't know how my vision may have played into this, but I got up presumably to go to the bathroom, and instead of going for the bathroom, I went to uh, my bedroom window, and I fell out 27 feet onto our flagstone patio and just about broke everything in my body, except I didn't hit my head. Now, uh, this is was the uh, cause of agonizing pain in a long recovery process for you. Mm-hmm. And in that recovery process, that I think that you learned a lot that you are able to use for everything in your life. Sure. I mean, I, you know, I was told that I would never be able to walk properly again. Um, and my left foot was shattered. My left hand was shattered. My back was broken. My right hand was broken. Um, and so I was in a wheelchair for four months and, you know, in the hospital for a month before I was discharged. I had multiple surgeries, bone graft from my hip, you name it. And so, you know, everybody else was going off to college. And, of course, that uh, meant that I couldn't go to school because I had to rehabilitate myself. And I had to wait until each of my limbs healed well enough to be able to start using them and rehabilitate them again. And it was a very lonely time, and I think that it really prepared me unknowingly for a lot of what was to come later with my official Usher diagnosis, having to sit with yourself to be in, you know, often complete silence when everyone else has sort of gone on and moved on with their lives uh, is terribly difficult. And I think that many of us spend so much time trying to run away from just being with ourselves. And it was really, I was forced to spend time alone, to be with myself, my own company. I think this book is such an interesting uh, chart of your journey, emotional journey you made to learn to be the person you are today who's super successful and, and 
just, you know, knocking the world on its side. And one of the things you do is you've developed a mantra. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the mantra and, and and when that happened and how that took you through just pushing a ball up through a tube. Yeah. Well, so when I I was recovered and this was after I'd graduated college um, years later. I must have been about 22. And I decided that I wanted to do the AIDS life cycle ride, uh, which is a, in, here in California. It's a 600-mile ride from San Francisco to L.A. And it was something that I was finally, you know, recuperated. And I, and I felt like I wanted to do something to make a difference and to feel the strength of my body again uh, and to help others. And there was a point with uh, which we were riding along the Pacific Coast Highway. And there was traffic zooming on one side of us. And on the opposite side of us was just a cliff. Uh, and there was a guardrail to sort of protect you from falling down that cliff. But, of course, when you're riding that quickly, that guardrail is not much protection. And I remember thinking to myself at the time, what keeps me from just veering my bike right into traffic or just veering my bike right off this cliff? Um, you know, when you're that anxious and nervous, your mind just sort of goes crazy. So in order for me to stay focused, in order for me to keep myself calm and to continue riding, uh, riding my bike, I somehow came up with this mantra in the moment. And I said it to myself, possibly for 30 to 40 miles straight with with no other thought. And that was breathe in peace. And I would breathe in through my nose breathe out fear and I would breathe out through my mouth and I would say that over and over and over again to keep myself riding uh, and not letting my mind wander to a very scary place. You know, for me, a, a book like this that's full of moments of conquest and in, inspiration, um, that can often seem kind of a little bit self-congratulatory or um, you know, there's a bit of puffery in there. And I think the reason that this book really worked for me was because it's a really raw and honest examination of yourself. You kind of portray yourself. You weren't the best kid in the world. I mean, you were competitive and you felt bad around Melissa. You talk a little bit about, you know, your your adolescence. So I think that that kind of balance in that perception of yourself makes the discoveries you find within yourself seem much more genuine. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, I, I, uh, I, I was, you know, I had, I lied a lot because I was afraid of, you know, being, of disappointing people. And um, I used to steal. I was, you know, I was not a, I was not necessarily an ideal kid. I mean, that was something that I hid from everyone, of course. Um, but I think that one of the things that's important, you know, when we call people or we think of someone as an inspiration, we always think that they're sort of living this idealistic life uh, or that they face, you know, big challenges. And in spite of the challenges, they're doing everything they can to live their lives. And yes, I am doing those things. But I allow myself when I experience loss or change in my vision or my hearing, I allow myself to cry. I allow myself to be angry. I allow myself to be sad. And I think that there is this... Um, idea that we're supposed to be okay with the things that are happening to us, the losses we experience. Um, And it's not okay. It's not something that I'm happy about. But it is something that I'm allowing myself to mourn. And that is such a crucial part of of life, allowing yourself to experience your emotions. You know, too, you talk about that for you, 
it was really how necessary it is for you to give back. For example, that AIDS ride you did. I mean, and the way you put it is charity is, is justice. And I thought that was really an uh, interesting spin on that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I was raised in uh, in a in a Jewish family, and we were Reformed Jews, so uh, a lot a lot of it was very cultural. But you know, I was bat mitzvah, and and um, one of the things that we have in Judaism is called sadaka. And when I was younger, it was you know you'd have a sadaka box, and you would put money in it or coins in it, and then you would give that to charity. And what I learned was that it wasn't charity that charity that you were giving to give to people who didn't have as much as you did to be to feel sort of privileged for what you have and to give back. It was more a way of sort of balancing of the scales, you know, that things were uneven and that to make things more a fairer, more just place, you were to help that process by giving some of what you had to people who may not have as much to make, you know, their lives uh, just as kind of, you know, successful or productive as yours. And helping you with this, you had a lot of really close friends and boyfriends. And and I like the way that you uh, show us these arcs, like, for example, with with Alan and and, uh, Caroline. So Mm -hmm. uh, talk about these two friends and the way that they've played through your life. Sure. So um, Alan and I initially started dating, and he is by far the funniest and the smartest person I know. He is really hysterical. Um, And he's very much a caretaker. So I think that, you know, uh, with my disabilities, I always had the sense that he wanted to sort of fix me. And at the time when we were dating, it felt like, well, this guy's trying to fix me, wants me to be involved in all of these clinical trials that I'm not prepared to be involved in in terms of research for my vision. Um, and, you know, I think now, obviously, years later, I see that it wasn't that so much that he wanted to fix me as much as he wanted um, to help me, that it was he was doing it out of love. But ironically, when we'd been dating, he was diagnosed with cancer. And so the caretaking roles sort of, you know, were, were turned. And I then was in a caretaking position uh, for him. And it was a unique experience to sort of be the caretaker and to be taken care of. Uh, and my best girlfriend, Caroline, uh, when we first met, you know, she was she was in a very difficult place. She, too, had struggled with an eating disorder and, and depression and was really having a hard time, you know, getting up and being out in the world. Um, and so... We happened to forge this wonderful friendship where, you know, I taught her sign language and we went on to learn tactile sign, which we use together to this day. Um, But what's interesting is that when you have a disability like mine, people often tell you how wonderful your friends are. Oh, you're, you know, Caroline is so wonderful to do everything she does for you. Um, And she is. She helps me tremendously find things and, and, you know, she signs to me when I don't hear someone. Um, But one of the things her mom reminded me of that I think is so important is that I have really helped her, too. I've helped her to come out of her shell. You know, she now teaches spin classes and she's a social worker at Bellevue Hospital in in New York City. And she's really done tremendous things with her life, with her life that she never thought she would have done before. Um, And so it's so important for me to know that, too, that this is not just a one way relationship of her helping me. 
as you started to lose your senses, your other senses compensated. So talk a little bit about that, and especially your sense of smell. I thought that you had some interesting comments about that. Yeah, well, you know, and I, I live in New York City, so there are a lot of smells <laughs> uh, that that we are exposed to, and particularly in the summer when, you know, the heat is just beating down and people have their garbage on the street uh, that's waiting to be picked up, and it's just a swamp of, of just utter, ugh. <laughs> uh, it just really smells terrible. But anyway, um, and I think that some people really find it to be repulsive, and unfortunately it, it just infiltrates my nostrils because, uh, as you said, my other senses, my taste and my smell and my touch have become much stronger. Interestingly, you know, I've had patients that I work with and uh, they've, you know, quit smoking or they've told me that they quit smoking. And I had a patient who came in and and said that uh, he, you know, had had a rough few days and I could smell that he'd smoked a cigarette on him. And I said, you know, did that rough day or has this rough time kind of caused you to go back to smoking cigarettes? And he said, well, I had a cigarette two days ago. And so that was something that I could still smell on him. I have a a wonderful ability to know people's cologne for some reason and perfumes. Um, So it's it has its perks and it also has its drawbacks. And, you know, I have a very uh, sensitive sense of taste. So I I, I'm I'm an animal lover in the first place. But even still, I try to eat meat because I like to get, you know, protein. And now meat has become so fleshy to me, so fleshy tasting that I, I can't eat meat anymore. Oh, that's a loss. <laughs> now, uh, one of the things I think, as you were losing both your sight and your hearing, that brings you into two very different communities mm-hmm. that have different cultures, different rules, and where your part in each of those cultures uh, is is different by virtue of belonging to them both. So talk about uh, becoming part of the deaf community, which I think is uh, – maybe a little bit more stronger? Tell me. Yeah. Well, so, um, you know, I mean, part of having Usher syndrome, I don't, I I would not likely have become as assimilated into the deaf community as I had, had I not been losing my hearing and decided to start learning sign language in college. Um, and sign language is such a beautiful and robust language. And the deaf community is a very strong community. And uh, you know, oftentimes we see people who are deaf who are signing and we think that deaf people are very expressive or very intense because of their facial expressions. And the reality is, is that all of the grammar uh, in sign language revolves around the face. So what you're seeing is not so much, um, you know, someone being incredibly intense uh, or emotive, but they're using their language because the language is in the hands, but it's also in the face as well. Um it's a facial and, comma? Yes, exactly. Well, and so facial expressions that look very uh, awkward or socially unacceptable in the hearing community. And, you know, the deaf community, as we know, has been uh, historically misrepresented and underserved, under misunderstood. And so it's it's very important that people understand or at least know that the deaf community is just as rich and capable as the hearing world. It's just a very different way of communicating. It's a different way of some of the social norms are much different. You know, for instance, if if I was seeing a friend 
uh, that I hadn't seen in a while who was deaf and I saw them for the first time, I might sign to them and say, you know, I'm happy to see you. Um, Are you okay? You look like you've gained weight. And if you were to say that to someone in the hearing world, you'd probably have just broken off that friendship for for good. But in reality, you know, in in the deaf community, it's not something you're saying because you're judging. Um, It's something that you're saying because you care, because you genuinely want to know if they're okay. So I I love being able to be a part of both of these worlds. And I work with deaf people in my practice, which is wonderful because there are a lot of uh, deaf people who need a therapist and they oftentimes have to have an interpreter come into therapy with them. So if you can imagine having to have a middleman uh, in a very personal and private setting where you want to be able to communicate your feelings, it's so nice that um, they don't have to do that with me. Now, as you are heading out into the world, into college, you found very different levels of reception within the disability world at, at uh Michigan State, you met a woman named Joni who was just remarkable, whereas Columbia was not so much. Yeah. So um, it was the University of Michigan, not Michigen State. That's okay. one of our big rivals. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> anyway, so the the director of deaf and hard of hearing stu- uh, students at Michigan was tremendous. I mean, she had she had deaf grandparents. She had interpreted for you know Bill Clinton, the Dalai Lama, Kofi Annan. I mean, she was really um, tremendous. And she was very much an advocate for uh, the deaf and hard of hearing students as well. And so she made sure that I had note takers for each of my classes so that I could follow the professors more easily by reading their lips. And so I, I didn't realize just how fortunate I was until, you know, however many years later I attended Columbia and I went into their disability services office and assumed that the same services would be readily available to me. And of course they weren't. And I was told that, you know, if I wanted to enlarge the print on the text of my books, that that was something that I was responsible for. And they pointed me towards, you know, the, the photo machine, the copier. Uh, and I thought to myself, well, if I'm already at a disadvantage by not being able to read regular print, now I need to come in here and enlarge my own print so that I can read. I'm spending more time than it already would take me uh, to have to make this class more accessible to me. So while I was at Columbia, I had uh, I did a lot of work in trying to make their services more accessible for students with disabilities. Well, I think um, one of the things about the way you tell these stories about your life that makes it uh, this book really successful for me is your sense of humor. Hmm. Uh, you use a lot of salty language, which <laughs> which really kind of relieves the tension and, and undercuts the seriousness of what you're going to say without making it go away. So, talk about just your sense of prose and, and writing. And do you how how do you write? Well, and you know, I wanted to. I didn't want to completely censor myself. I do have a bit of a salty mouth, I've been told, um, and I'm, I'm working on it. But um, it was important for me to really convey who I really am in, in this book um, and the way I really speak. It's I, I think it's peppered through there. It's not infiltrated uh, throughout the book. But, 
you know, one of the ways that I deal with my condition is through humor. And I think that we all do. We all use humor for many things. And if I didn't have a sense of humor about so much of what I go through, it would be much more challenging to live a life going progressively, you know, deaf and blind. And there have been a lot of very sort of ironic and funny experiences that have come out of this and things that, you know, I couldn't possibly make up if I tried. And so I think that, you know, the people are, that are around me are, are like my closest friends are some of the funniest people I know. And they're willing and able to laugh with me about, you know, certain things that that relate to my vision and my hearing loss, uh, no matter how frustrating it is, you know, at some point. We know that we can laugh about it because it's just so absurd. And I really think that it's important for people to be able to see that having a disability and all of these things that happen to you don't have to be so dark and serious and solemn, you know, that it can be sort of funny and outrageous. Uh, and I, I wanted to convey that in, in my own writing. And you also do a great job of there are like milestones that we see throughout the book, this was the last time I heard this. Mm -hmm. This was the last time I saw that. Mm -hmm. And I think those, in, by contrast, re um, reach a, a, a level of poignance. Yeah, you know, there, the times that I have, I have memories, you know, we have photographs that we take of so many things to capture memories uh, and times. And one of the things that I've really done throughout the years is capture those moments and those times in my memory, with my vision, with my hearing, with my sense of smell. Um, and, you know, for instance, when I climbed to the top of um, the Inca Trail uh, at the Gate of the Sun at Machu Picchu, being there and taking in sort of that vista in front of me and all of the ruins and what it smelled like, that was something that was a memory I'll never forget. And it wasn't something that I needed a picture for. It was something that is sort of embedded in my mind. You alluded to earlier the various clinical trials and different things you could do. We live in an age where every day brings some new medical discovery that this is cured or that is cured or they've got this going or that going. Uh, talk about your decision to hang back from those. So, um, you know, about 15 years ago or so, I was told that there would be a treatment for for my condition, likely. Luckily, that, 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 there, that there would be... Uh, something to stop further progression of my vision loss. And, you know, of course, here we are 15 years later, and there's not. And so there's a, there's a bit of me that feels a little angry that people could be so careless in saying something like that, because, of course, you're incredibly hopeful when you hear that. Uh, there is a lot of research that's advancing. You know, part of what's difficult about having an orphan disease like Usher syndrome type 3 is that there's not a lot of funding that goes uh, if any, that goes towards your condition because there are not enough people who are affected by it. Um, and this is part of why, you know, uh, seeing that ice bucket challenge with the ALS, um, you know, through their foundation was so remarkable because so few people are affected by it. And it created such a buzz and awareness for a, a very rare condition. So for me, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful. Uh, obviously, I want to raise awareness and we need to raise funds for um, clinical trials for the future. I think that most likely what we'll find is something that may help stop further progression of vision loss. Um, and 
you know, maybe in my lifetime, I don't think that they will be able to restore vision necessarily because when something is dead, you can't simply bring it back to life. Just if a person dies, you can't bring that person back to life. But they are looking for other ways of um, going around the retina, which is the, the rods and cones in the retina are what are deteriorating in my case. So they're finding uh, other ways to bypass the retina to create vision through the use of you know, the ganglion cells. And it's, it's a bit complicated, but, but there, there is a lot of research out there. And you know, the only thing you can really do is be hopeful. And I like to think of myself as cautiously optimistic. Now, for you, uh, the way your disease manifests itself visually is interesting. It's not what I would expect. So describe what's happening to you, to your eyes and your vision. Sure. So if if a normally sighted person sees 180 degrees when looking straight ahead, I have just 10 degrees of central vision. So I actually also have my outermost periphery, which is just a sliver of vision in my outermost periphery. And it's helpful, but of course, we can't focus our outermost periphery. So it's only useful to, to an extent. And of course, when it's dark out, you can't really see much out of your periphery. Uh, anyway. So I have what's called donut vision. RP, retinitis pigmentosa, which is what I have, generally affects people in two ways. It's It, it causes tunnel vision um, so that you lose your periphery and then your central vision. And there are some people like me who have donut vision where you have a specific amount of loss. It's like a donut actually in your vision uh, that's that's not there so that you have your central most vision and this little bit of vision on the outermost periphery uh, of your eyes, but that there's an actual donut size of blindness in your field of vision itself. Now, uh, you have recently gone, this book ends with uh, you finally deciding to get implant. Mm -hmm. This is a big decision both for you personally, um, and you, but you have some great humor bits about that as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but also within the context of the deaf community, this is a controversial procedure. So talk about making that decision. Sure. So I was, I you know, I was born and raised in a hearing world, and so when uh, a cochlear implant is something that you get once you have a certain amount of hearing loss, and you're a candidate, you need to be, you know, thoroughly tested to be sure that you're even a candidate for it. So someone who's had hearing the way I have, who's learned to hear normally, um, and loses their hearing the way I have, uh, is generally an ideal candidate. And so that what that means is that if I w were to be implanted, which I was. Um, that relearning how to hear would be um, more most ideal for someone like me because I know what certain sounds sound like. And, you know, we often see videos, YouTube viral videos of children or mothers who have their cochlear implant turned on for the first time and all of a sudden they're hearing sound and it's wonderful and everybody claps or they smile or they cry and then the video's done. And I've always felt sort of resentful about that a bit only because it's not like that. You have to relearn how to hear digitally. And it's, you know, music, it never really sounds the same. It's more digitized. It's a sound processor. So it, um, it's, it's a different type of hearing. It's very crisp and very clear once you learn how to hear. But it takes months of listening therapy 
I'm I'm now a year out and I'm I'm really doing well with it. But it's controversial within the deaf community because you know, the deaf community doesn't see itself as disabled. And really, it's not. I mean, to, to be deaf does not mean that you are cognitively incapable of learning anything else that anyone who's hearing is. It just means that you communicate differently. Um, and so there's this sense that being deaf is something that needs to be cured. And so a cochlear implant is not ideal for someone. If you're deaf, you can't just go and get a cochlear implant and learn how to hear. Hearing is an auditory skill, and we learn it at a very young age. And if you have not learned to hear, getting cochlear implant later on will not help you learn how to discriminate sounds again. You know, you referred to something much earlier in the interview, and I wanted to come back on it. Um, you talked about tactile sign, sign language, mm-hmm. which uh, once I kind of sussed what you meant by that, I thought, wow, that's really interesting. So what is tactile sign, lang- sign so, language? Yeah, so tactile sign language is the, is the language of the deafblind. And when I was at the Helen Keller National Center uh, on Long Island and I was doing a lot of my uh, mobility training, you know, using a cane and uh, computer technology and, um, you know, all different types of services that they they teach you, I saw so many deafblind people there who were tactile signing. And if you've ever seen someone tactile sign, uh, it's so beautiful to watch because it almost looks as though people are sort of embracing, like their hands are and their arms are engaged in like this poetic dance of some sort. Um, and so it was something that my best girlfriend, Caroline, and I decided we wanted to learn and to practice. And what's wonderful now is that we do practice it and we have learned it. And through learning it, there's a lot of humor because, you know, things get lost in translation. Um, just as learning any language, you know, happens. Um, but it's it's tremendous to be able to communicate with someone without having to use your ears or your eyes to use simply your hands and have an entire conversation is really remarkable. And it's very it's very fun. And I might suggest that that's not unlike reading in, in some ways because your reading uh, just involves just taking that data in raw. So I'd like you to talk about the decision to write. I mean, you you had been on, by the time this book had started, I think you'd already been on the Today Show, mm-hmm. and you, you already had a high profile as an activist. So talk about making the decision to sit down and write your story and organize your life into a book. Yeah. You know, I think that people had asked me uh, years before about writing something, and I kind of felt like, well, what do I have to say that anybody's going to care about or that might be meaningful? Um, and, you know, over the years and being a part of, um, we, you know, we started this 501c3 organization called the Usher 3 Initiative. And, you know, I, uh, I had the inaugural spinathon, of course, what would I do to raise money but have a spinathon for it? And we raised $110,000 in our first year, which was exciting. Um, and after that, I was approached by a literary agent who'd, you know, approached me years earlier. And he said, you know, now do you want to write a book? And I, I thought to myself, and what I realized is that throughout my own process of coming to terms with Usher syndrome, um, I, I, I re- I've read many books from other people who have faced adversity in whatever form uh, that it's presented itself. 
And even if it was someone who's dealt with something very different than I've ever experienced, there was always something in there that in, that they'd written that resonated with me. I always felt connected to them somehow or that I'd learned something or that I'd gained perspective. And so I wanted to sort of be able to do that for others, too. I wanted to give voice to a very uh, rare condition. Uh, and there are many people who have Usher syndrome itself, whether it's one, two or three, you know, uh, depends on the person. But I wanted there to be a voice for this community. I wanted to raise awareness and I wanted people to have something that they could read and relate to and hopefully gain something from for their own experience. Because I think there, we all have something to learn from one another. Rebecca Alexander's new book is Not Fade Away. A Memoir of Senses Lost and Found. Thank you for speaking with me, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. It's really been nice to be here. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.